Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to the New Books Network, New Books in History. I'm your host, R. Grant Kleiser. With me today is Dr. Juan Jose Ponce Vasquez, who is an assistant professor of history at the University of Alabama. He is a specialist in colonial Latin American history, the Spanish Caribbean, and the Spanish Atlantic, especially during the 17th century. After many years of writing and research related to Hispano-French interactions on the island of Hispaniola, the infamous depopulations of the island, which we will talk much more about in this interview, and smuggling activities by various people in Santo Domingo, he has just released his first book entitled Islanders and Empire, Smuggling and Political Defiance in Hispaniola, 1580-1690. Islanders and Empire tracks the importance of smuggling to the society, economy, and politics of the island of Hispaniola in this long 17th century. Smuggling, in his words, made people's lives on the island, an island that had suffered from imperial commercial neglect and a declining sugar industry. Concommitment with this endemic smuggling, local elites began asserting their control over local and imperial institutions on the island, taking advantage of royal officials' isolation from the Spanish metropole and their need for local alliances. These, do- these factors, Dr. Ponce Vasquez argues, allowed local elites to gain immense wealth and power, alter the course of European inter-imperial struggles, limit, redirect, and suppress the Spanish crown's policies, and thus take control of the destinies of Hispaniola, other Spanish Caribbean territories, and the Spanish Empire in the region during this period. Many thanks, Dr. Ponce Vasquez, for taking the time to speak with me today, and a big congratulations on this great monograph. Thank you, Grant. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Of course. So first off, uh, I'm just a little bit curious to ask what got you interested in this particular time, uh, place, and subject? Well, um, this project started in grad school for me, um, so I'm sure you can relate <laughs> to those early early stages. Um, and I, I, re- I really wanted to work on Spanish Caribbean, and I was, I was trying to kind of figure out what that was going to be. Um, I realized it was uh, this, this enormous uh, hole in the historiography when it came to to the, to the insular Spanish Caribbean and about anything that is not actually Cuba. <laughs> it's, it's Cuba and Havana, right? It's, it, that's kind of like reigns over the historiography quite strongly. But there is, in terms of the insular Spanish Caribbean, uh, there is very little for Hispaniola, particularly in the 17th century. There is a bit in the 16th century, that's quite a bit, and the, the 18th century as well. But then it seems that there is kind of this hole in the middle and that doesn't connect the 16th and 18th century. And I felt compelled to, to try to, to figure out what's happening in this, uh, at this point, right? So that drove me straight into, into a place that kind of has been, it's been neglected also by the historiography, not only by the Spanish Empire <laughs> this time. Yeah. yeah, definitely. And so, you know, because this is such an unfamiliar topic to so many people, could you just describe briefly what the political and economic situation of Hispaniola was around 1580 when, when your monograph starts? So and in particular, why did residents choose to smuggle so extensively uh, and what exactly were they smuggling? Yeah, um, so I, I try the fir- in the first chapter, I try precisely to kind of like get people up to speed uh, on that on that uh, 16th century, like from 1492 to kind of 1580s, right? So by 1580s, what is happening is, uh, as you mentioned, actually, in your introduction, there are at least uh, three things happening, right? 
So there is the, the, the crisis of the plantation economy on the island, which is uh, becoming quite important by the 50, uh, 1550s, 1560s. It starts to actually be clear that it, it's on a decline. Uh, and it has to do both with internal and external factors. Uh, internally, um, the island, the quality of the sugar on the island is not, it's, it's not high quality, right? Uh, and, and so that also makes the price to go down. And then you have also competition from other places in the Atlantic that are starting to produce sugar of higher quality and in higher volumes, like Brazil, right? This is the moment that Brazil starts producing sugar. So Hispaniola's sugar becomes kind of like a secondary in the market, and, and, and people start looking for, for alternatives, right, for alternative to, to, the, to sugar plantations. And they're going to experiment with ginger. Ginger becomes quite important in the, uh, in the last decades of the, of the 16th century for Hispaniola and for other places in the Caribbean, like Puerto Rico as well. Um, so, so ginger becomes kind of like a, a possible substitute, but it never really, uh, it never becomes like the only thing because hides during all this time, cattle, the cattle economy is being always very important and it's going to continue to be important all the way till the 18th century, pretty much until the, uh, the end of the 18th century. Cattle is going to be the defining, um, a, a kind of economic, uh, economic exploit of, of the island, right? Also for smuggling, as, as I'll say in a minute. So. The crisis of plantation economy is one thing. Uh, the other one is, as you also mentioned, the uh, um, Hispaniola is left outside of the Spanish mercantile networks. Uh, during the, uh, the second half of the 16th century, uh, Spain is starting to organize the fleet system uh, that actually, you know, this monop uh, monopoly system in which uh, Spain uh, sends uh, goods, manufactured goods to the colonies in two fleets uh, yearly and in exchange of silver and other products, kind of like they, they, they establish this monopoly that that works and doesn't work at the same time but you know it it fulfills his role to actually direct uh, you know uh cash to 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 the spanish coffers uh, hispaniola is left outside of that circuit um so even though santo domingo is kind of the main part of the americas really until almost until the 1520s and 30s it's kind of like the place right after that it starts slowly and slowly starts kind of being outside of these networks and 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 that's going to be you know it's very hard to get uh, European products in, uh, in 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 Hispaniola, particularly and this is what they are smuggling. They are uh, smuggling for clothes and clothing accessories, and also enslaved Africans. And they're exchanging them normally for hides, hides, but also sometimes ginger and sugar. Yeah, yeah, it's it's really interesting, kind of connecting those those last two points that you made that the historiography in recent or until recent years has kind of followed the, the flota system in certain ways, that Cuba and Havana is the major center of, of Caribbean, Spanish Caribbean studies. And, and, you know, that kind of became one of the major ports of stopovers for the flota system. So, um, you know, describing this, this alternate, uh, this, this, this world that is kind of left on the, on the outside of the, the flota yeah. system is, is a and Cartagena place. too. Cartagena, Cartagena is the other place, right? Havana and yep. Cartagena are like yep. the two places, probably the best known places for the Spanish Caribbean, precisely because of their connections with the flotas and, and slavery and the slave trade, right? Yeah, definitely, definitely. So speaking about smuggling, uh, a key phrase you use in your book is, quote, the moral economy of smuggling that uh, Jesse Cromwell, historian Jesse Cromwell uses in his recent book, The Smuggler's World, which is about 18th century smuggling in what is now Venezuela, and was inspired by the work of E.P. Thompson. Uh, can you describe what you mean by this moral economy of smuggling that developed? 
Yeah, I'm very happy that actually Jesse um, coined this term because it, yeah. it kind of like <laughs> it saved me the trouble to actually to <laughs> to have it to, to to do the heavy lifting uh, yeah. in this case. So I what I'm trying for me this this idea that that Jesse kind of coins for for Venezuela and in many ways it takes shape throughout the 17th century and by the 18th century it's kind of fully formed for in Jesse's work. For me, it's kind of like similar in that sense, but it starts even earlier, right? Um, so Hispaniola residents, residents believed that uh, the participation in the contraband trade uh, was an inherent right, right? Despite the crown's opposition uh, to, 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 you know, and the attempts to stifle this trade, right? So um, people from all kinds of backgrounds, for some, all social backgrounds, uh, participated in it. And we're talking about church, members of the church, royal administration, uh, local elites, uh Free, uh, free people of color, enslaved people also through their masters are sometimes forced to participate in this. So there is, this, uh, there are possibly maroons as well, although this we have actually less less information. So so people embrace this uh, smuggling as as uh, facing the lack of of support from the crown. So many people, particularly in rural parts of Hispaniola, they're going to oppose any attempts to stop them very fiercely and sometimes violently. Right. So so uh, it becomes. Um, but I, I think it's important to remember also that there is sort of always for some people standing here and right and they do this openly for others. Uh, they still believe in inherent right, but they understand very much that actually the crown opposes it. So that they engage in a, in a process of dissimulation. Right. Uh, for example, they voice their their concern uh, with uh, about contraband to the crown, but at the same time, they are participating and this happens also in the audiencia. It happens with a lot of people who are actually, they know the language that the crowns wants to hear and they actually play to their audience, right? But in reality, they're also participating. Yeah, definitely. And, um, and you know, the, and, and, and as you as you say this, this becomes an endemic part and part of the culture of, of the island. Um, so, you know, connecting back and talking about you know the reasons for this this smuggling activity and the, and le- being left out of the the flotas system. Uh, another term you employ in this book is periphery, um, and many many historians have labeled Hispaniola as a periphery after the first decades of Spanish conquest and colonization. Um, and as this uh, this process happens of being kind of left out of this major commercial network for the Spanish. But in your analysis, uh, would you consider Hispaniola a periphery? Um, I think it's, it certainly is, uh, but there are some caveats, I think, to the use of the term. Um, at least two, I'd like to at least mention two uh, now, right? Um, the first one is, that, I mean, I'm, I'm a big fan of the of a center-periphery model. I think it's helpful, uh, but at the same time, it can be dangerous as well, right? Um, uh, in many ways, uh, when thinking about the Spanish Empire, uh, centers are very, are very, very few, <laughs> and peripheries are many, right? So, so that's some, so in many ways. The, the, the normative, the, the normative character of the Spanish Empire is periphery, it's not center, right? So that is that's very important to remember that that the center is not the norm, is the exception, right? So that's one thing. Uh, the second one is that periphery uh, as a category is not an absolute, right? Places are not either or. The places are not either centers or periphery, but depending on what you're looking at, there can be several things at the same time, right? So, for example, in the case of Hispaniola, it is politically it's a center for the Caribbean, right? Because the Audiencia is there, the High Court of Appeals is there, 
which means that people have to constantly kind of go back and forth and they present their cases to the audiencia, they appeal to the audiencia, so they're traveling in and out. And this is something, obviously, that local elites, this is one of the points I'm trying to make in the book, that local elites are going to hold on to this and take advantage of this, right, for their own ends. Um, but at the same time, as we discussed already, um, commercially, it is, uh, it is, at least commercially, within the Spanish empire, it is a periphery. But commercially, in, in, in the Atlantic sense, actually, it becomes a very important place, right? So in that sense, it could be actually a center uh, or a center of sorts, right? Um, and then there is one more thing uh, that I think it's also crucial, which is a periphery is not a synonym of less importance, which is sometimes the way that we have used it as historians. Um, I think that, um, and I think sometimes historians are kind of followed, uh, using these terms have follow actually the interests of, of, of the Spanish uh, empire, for example. We use this term in many ways, the way that actually this, the, the, uh, the empires use them, right? So, because the priorities for, in the case of the Spanish empire, is actually that the, the silver that comes from Northern Mexico and the Andes, you know, everything else is periphery. The, the important thing is that to secure those, right? Um, but that doesn't mean that the peripheries are unimportant. At least as a historian, we need to kind of like remove ourselves from that categorization and think of peripheries as, as crucial parts of the empire that if, if these ones fall, everything will fall as a domino effect, right? Yeah. So yeah. so we, I think we need to think about peripheries as a, as a crucial part of the whole. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and as you mentioned, um, constitutive of most of the whole, right? And that peripheries are actually most Absolutely. of the empire uh, and so are essential for, for study as well and to use your analysis to study other parts of the empire as well. Um, so smuggling is one of the many difficult topics, topics to research and I kind of go through the struggle as well in, in my research in the early modern period um, because, you know, for the most part, um, smugglers very rashly did a good job of trying to hide uh, their illegal activity. Um, so did you find it hard to locate sources for this book because of that problem? Or was smuggling such an endemic part of the culture of Hispaniola that practitioners didn't need to hide their actions as much as, say, other other times and places? Um, yeah, I mean, smuggling is, is always difficult. And the yeah. good thing about smuggling, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to turn it actually in a positive, which is, you know, smuggling is fascinating because the, even though you might find very few, very few times, right, but very few proofs of smuggling, if you find them, it means that it's only the tip of the iceberg, right? But those are the people who got caught. There's a lot of people who didn't get caught. So that you know that actually those small cases, they give you kind of like a, a template to understand that it's going much deeper, right? But no, but sources are the sources for for Hispaniola are really challenging in part because unlike other places in Spanish America, uh, there are very few local sources. Uh, so there are no the the um the, the archives of the Audiencia, for example, all the documents of all the cases that the Audiencia saw, um, that it doesn't exist. Uh, for the 17th century, certainly it doesn't exist, and not for the 16th century either. Um, we don't have uh, notaries, uh, the notary archives for Santo Domingo, and we know that there were like three, four, five notaries at any time and any given time we don't have any evidence of those uh that's not that, that haven't been preserved so all we have in many ways are uh the documents that are in mostly uh, is the documents that are in their chivo de indias in in sevilla right uh, there is a little bit obviously in other places i i went to simancas also archivo general de simancas so there are a few things there uh and then other other places right but but in, in really in reality everything is in in archivo de indias and the, the contents for Hispaniola for this period are not actually um, described. So it's a deep dive. You just start looking for documents. I was in the archive for two years. 
uh, I probably uh, because I could that I, I'm lucky because I'm from Sevilla, so I I was at home, so I was there for two years and I gathered over almost four thousand documents during this time, but yeah, but not everybody can do that, and and as everybody who works in, in Spanish America knows, uh, the the Archivo de Indias is renowned for having a terrible terrible uh, copy of documents. The policy for copying documents is awful, so. So no, it it is really challenging to actually find documents, and it requires like a it's like a needle in the haystack process of looking at every paper and kind of turn, 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 turn until you find your your body of evidence. It's really yeah. hard. Yeah, I can relate to the the problems there of not being able to take photos in the Archivo de Indias, and and so you have to spend a lot of good time there and, and copy everything uh, that you can there. Um, I, th- I think also um, you mentioned in your book that. One of your advisors or professors told you to not study this topic because none of the none of the uh, documents exist anymore because they're all, um, you know, uh, were destroyed um, or based on weather, weather problems in the Caribbean and organizational problems in the Caribbean. So, um, yeah. And I can I can tell listeners that you know yeah. it's challenging, but it's not impossible. So there is yeah. in the Chile de India, it's, it's like a bottomless pit of of yeah. wonderful stuff, yeah. but you have to find it. That's the problem, <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, there is you can we can do a lot about places. It really uh, comparatively, at least with places like I don't know, like Oaxaca or the Andes. You know, mm-hmm. comparatively, they have so much uh, much richer. Uh, like local archives than than yeah. than the Caribbean, but you know we, there is a lot for us to do. Uh, people who like the Caribbean, but it's 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 a hard, it's a deep dive. Definitely, definitely. So so going into the the content of your chapters now, um, can you talk a little bit about the effects that Sir Francis Drake's sack of the city of Santo Domingo in 1586 had on this economic situation of the island that you were describing previously? Yeah, um, I, 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 so I use uh, Francis Drake's attack almost kind of like a rhetorical kind of point uh, in the uh, in the in the argument of the book, but I think it does have like real implications, right? I think um, when you look at the uh, uh, Francis Drake sack the city for like I think a couple of weeks and destroy uh, like a th- it burned like a third of the city, uh, it sacked every building. Uh, they used you know uh, the cathedral in some despicable ways according to the sources. Uh, so, so I think it had a real, a, a real shock effect. So, in, in many ways, the uh, Francis Drake sack of the city is kind of like, uh, it's the point in which people in Hispaniola cannot pretend anymore that that they're they're in trouble, right? That so so at least until then they you know many of them had inherited you know particularly you know this this the, the wealthier people had inherited houses from their from their forefathers, like stone houses, and they have like silver and gold, and they have goods, and they have so there is like a, a material, a material uh, culture that that allow them to 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 live in a certain in certain kind of um, you know in some in, you know well they, they allow them to live or pretend that actually they were still an important place in the world. I think the sack of uh, of 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 Santo Domingo by Drake is going to put an end to that, and I think it serves as a if if before they were actually uh, smuggling, after Francis Drake, I think the importance of smuggling becomes e- even you know it's, it's it's higher, and and the need for smuggling to actually get the goods that they want and need uh, is going to become uh, much higher. And and you can see the but the irony is that you don't see that exclusively in Santo Domingo. People from Santo Domingo, although you do have evidence of that, but it's really across the island. People really step it up. 
when it comes to to trading with foreigners in you know in the aftermath of Drake, and also because there are new players after Drake in many ways represent um, like it's when after Drake a lot of Englishmen also come to the Caribbean uh, to 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 trade and to you know to steal because in many ways the trade the, the pirate and the smuggler in the 16th and 17th century these are interchangeable roles right. Uh, it depends on opportunity. If you have opportunity to 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 steal, you steal, and if you don't, then you trade, right? So so there are so so in many ways the English come in force after Drake's, inspired by Drake, uh, with you know mixed mixed uh, desires really, and then the Dutch as well, also very interested in trade as well. The Dutch in the first decades of the 17th century. So so there is a, an increase of smuggling, I think, after Drake that is quite important. Yeah. So why were Spanish officials then unable to curb this growing contraband trade in Hispaniola that develops hmm. in this late 18th, 16th century? Um, for I think for at least two reasons. One is that um, that moral economy was solidified at this time, and people who lived in the kind of in the, in the far in, in the far uh, towns and villages of Hispaniola in the north and west, you know, this was the bread. Yeah, this is what the, the bread and butter. This is what actually made them who they were, right? It gives them the the, uh, the material wealth to then actually be who they were. So there was no will to actually end the, the system. The system became a way for some people to make money. So the Audiencia names a judge with a cushy salary, and the, he brings like a, a, a somebody to kind of keep track to, to write the documentation. He brings an alguacil or a sheriff to actually go with him to a pre, to, and then they go there and they start actually basically negotiating with the smugglers, right? So, what do you give me if I don't actually arrest you? What do you give me? So there is all these kind of negotiations that you can see sometimes in accusations. You know, people are accusing each other of doing this this stuff, and so you can see it becomes a business. You know, the the entire process for for people of the audience and people who are. In, on the island of Santo Domingo, in the centers of power, it becomes a way to make a living. And many people in Santo Domingo are also involved in the contraband trade. So even though in Spain and in Madrid, uh, the crown wants to stifle this and end the trade, in the, in the island there is no interest. And even when there is interest among some people, um, they are, many ways, they're alone. They don't have the power to kind of like do anything about it. Yeah. So you then then tell a story about how sort of in desperation during this circumstance, uh, you know, Spanish authorities see this smuggling and and also see that what they consider what you and what you say is sort of Protestant contamination of the island because so much of this trade is happening with Northern Europeans, Protestant Europeans. So the Spanish authorities decide to launch a violent process of what you call a depopulations of Western and Northern Hispaniola from 1604 to 1606. So can you describe a little bit about what these depopulations were and and the importance they had for Hispaniola's history? Yes, the, uh, I call them depopulations. There are, no, there are uh, popularly known as devastaciones, uh, which I, I try to kind of like walk away from it because it has also certain kind of like nationalistic um, uh, uh, undertones in Dominican Republic. So I try to kind of move away from, from that term. To me, it's kind of like a, it's a, it's a depopulation. It's a forced depopulation of the island. And it was very violent. Uh, it became violent because there was a great resistance to it. Right. Um, and some people actually raised arm against the, against the governor to stop it. Right. So the, the population was an attempt uh, um, after 20 years of, of, of the crown trying to end the smuggling and the contraband trade. They have grown increasingly co- concerned not only about, 
the, the fact that these people were breaking the Spanish monopoly on goods, I think that that's been the traditional interpretation of the depopulation, that it was, you know, to stop contraband. And that was actually very important. But there is also, I think, a religious element that has been forgotten. And that is that there are more and more testimonies going back to Spain that actually these people are entering into long term agreements with French and uh, English um, um, uh, uh, merchants. Right. And many of these are seen to be Lutheran, which means basically they are Protestants. Right. So and they are having parties together. They are becoming godparents to children born in the island. So the ties have been solidified and the crown gets very worried about what that means for kind of like the spiritual purity of Hispaniola and its people. So I think it is precisely at the change of 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 guard in in the in in the uh, Consejo de Indias. Right. When. After Philip II died and Philip III comes to power, it is during those first years that there is a kind of a change of mindset. And it, they said that this decision that you know we need to do something drastic about Hispaniola. And then the orders, which uh, the idea actually comes from uh, somebody in Santo Domingo who actually went to, he, he's the one who gives the idea to do this. And the crown is going to actually take it, uh, is take it on and then give the order to the populate to basically burn all the cities and, pop- and towns in the north and west of the island and move the population uh, to the surroundings of Santo Domingo, right? And they're going to draw a line uh, that people wouldn't be able to cross by by, by penalty of death, really. Um, so so but the population, basically, the, the entire island gets depopulated and everybody gets concentrated uh, in kind of a third of mm-hmm. the island's um, um, land, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it's a really fascinating uh, part of Hispaniola's history and one that obviously has repercussions as we go forward, which we will talk about. So a- after these depopulations, you state that, quote, uh, contraband went through a second re- um, renaissance centered not in faraway beaches in the north, but in Santo Domingo itself, the city of Santo Domingo itself. That's a quote from page 171. So how, how did the city of Santo Domingo become a smuggling yeah, it was it was so several things happened to allow this uh, to happen, right? Well, first of all, the, the population put everybody around Santo Domingo, right? So uh, the uh, the line drawn on the map saying that you cannot cross um, at this point became kind of it, it, it was quite serious. So people who looked for uh, people searched for alternatives, right? And it's, it is around this time also that the uh, the legislation around uh, the positions of regidores or, or councilmen in the city of Santo Domingo are going to change, and the crown is going to start selling them, uh, selling them and a perpetuity. So it was selling to you, and then you can actually transfer it to whomever you want, paying only a fraction of what the actually the uh, the position cost at the time, right? So so this is something that is going to allow a lot of individuals to kind of become part of this kind of like local uh, institutional elite. And they're going to actually use that in order uh, to influence uh, every institution and, and official on the island. So, so Santo Domingo is going to become the center of, of, of the contraband trade. There's going to be, uh, it's not going to be, not only Santo Domingo becomes the center of the trade, but actually because there is a continuous lack of cash, uh, people in Santo Domingo, these individuals who are influencing both the audiencia, the governor, uh, the, the the religious institutions they're going to start using actually the funds that the uh, that the that the uh, um, the crown institutions have like the situado which is the money that the the the, the crown sends yearly to to pay for the administration they'll start actually getting their hands on the situado and use it to actually buy goods in other parts of the Caribbean 
right? So, so it becomes a huge business. Not only they're influencing the audiencia, so certain individuals are are become uh, kind of go betweens uh, uh, with uh, people in north coast of Venezuela, uh, 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 Cuba. All those people who have cases to appeal, they actually go. They don't go straight to the audiencia. They go to some of these local leaders who then negotiate with the people of the audience. So they, they give them powers. So, so it becomes, this becomes a business. And then the money of the situado becomes actually like a, like a cash cow for a lot of people to use um, and to, to enrich themselves. Uh, yeah. To the detriment, of course, mostly of, of the soldiers. The soldiers are going to suffer tremendously because of this. Yeah, I I don't want to talk too much about this because I want to give our, our listeners an incentive to actually buy the book. But your description of one of these characters, Rodrigo Pimentel, is absolutely fascinating. He um I, I didn't I didn't know about him before I read this book, but uh, he seems to be the sort of de, almost de facto leader of of Santo Domingo. Um, at this time, he is you know a private citizen, but has immense control and. Uh, acting with impunity and and as you said you know using the situado this royal treasury to help buy contraband goods um you know under the nose and and with the consent of of the governor and you know it almost i'm not sure if this is an apt comparison but it almost reminded me of sort of a, a pablo escobar type figure of the 17th century you know of, of kind of controlling and doing extra legal uh control over this region um so it you know it's a really really fascinating character that you really bring to life really well in this book he, he really is. It's, it's, it's a riot to actually see. Uh, it's, I mean, this is one of those cases in which, um, uh, you know, re- reality in many ways surpasses fiction. Uh, what this guy was, ab- uh, was able to do in the time that he was alive, and he became extraordinarily wealthy. Uh, like 300, his fortune was calculated in between three and 400,000 pesos. So that's a lot of money. Um, that's a lot of money for the time. So, so this guy had so, so much money and so much influence. Uh, and he obviously, it, it changed, right? The interesting thing is not a linear, it's not a linear growth constantly, but there are actually ups and downs in the process, right? So it's, it's definitely worth, that's probably one of my favorite chapters because, you know, it's the one that allows me to really kind of tell like a, like a, like a story of a character that really illuminates what is happening, you know, as a whole in, in Santo Domingo. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's really, and, 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 you know, the, the episode you have of the graffiti uh, on the walls mm-hmm. of Santo Domingo, the prime mover of all machinations, uh, <laughs> you know, there's so much respect and, and well, I, mean, I guess maybe respect is not the, the right word. Or fear. Perhaps, but, but and fear, fear, right. But yeah, fear yeah. Of, of him. Um, yeah. it's, it's a really fascinating episode there. <laughs> um, so the Island of Hispaniola, uh, for those of you, um, who have some sense of geography, uh, now constitutes the two nation states of, of Haiti and the Dominican Republic, which in the early modern period roughly corresponded to the colonies uh, that were known as Saint-Domingue and Santo Domingo. So the history of this island also involves French colonization and population of the western third of this island uh, beginning in the 17th century. So what was the relationship between the Spanish residents on the eastern side and those of this new colony of Saint-Domingue? Yeah, that relationship is going to evolve, right? Um, we know that, uh, you know, this is in the, in the beginnings, um, the colonization of uh, like the, uh, the northern European colonization of Western Hispaniola was kind of, uh, this is the time of the Buccaneers, right? 1630s onwards from the island of Tortuga, which is in the northwest corner of, of Hispaniola. So uh, in the beginning, it's quite, it's quite fraught, right? I mean, they, there are several expeditions to expel uh, successful expeditions actually to expel uh, those those northern Europeans, English and French. They were kind of like a mixed 
crew of people who were uh, reciting uh, that the, their stronghold was was Tortuga. So there are several expeditions to expel them, but they, they're really never gonna they're never gonna go away completely. They always come back because the Spaniards go back to Santo Domingo and then they move back, right? So this is a time of the buccaneers in which you have people roaming the island, hunting for feral cattle. Uh, there are um, planting tobacco. There are relationships between this this buccaneer sometimes and maroon groups uh, that are living together even sometimes. So there are so this kind of this this which this is a this is a, an aspect that is very hard to to document really. Uh, I think the French sources have more more on this. Uh, but but so so once the by sixteen. 70s really the the uh, the french are already in control of 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 this colony of this side of of tortuga particularly and they start actually populating the uh, the north of the island and they start actually spreading through the west from the northwest of the island and by then it becomes very uh it, it's still there is a fight for territory by then hispaniola or, or, or santo domingo started kind of like move away from the, the populations quite a lot and started actually uh, create settlements again in in this frontier area because they are realizing that the French are expanding and they need to claim as much territory as possible. So that is a, a, the, the frontier for the Spanish are, is moving westwards. The frontier for the French is moving eastwards, and that's going to actually produce quite a lot of um, a lot of um, uh, uh, conflicts. You know, a lot of skirmishes. By the 1680s, there is actually a, a, a moment of peace between France and and Spain. And I think this is a moment in which the, the um, commercial contacts between the, the both sides they start, and and it become quite fluid. It becomes this is the, the the foundational. I think it is the foundational moment in which Santo Domingo is going to start uh, uh, providing Saint Domingue or, or what it's going to be Saint Domingue with cattle. That is going to become crucial to actually develop the uh, the sugar economy and the slave econ- the slave driven economy that they're going to actually be famous for in the 18th century. In many ways, uh, you know, every Barbados, every Barbados needs a Carolina, and yeah. every yeah. Saint Domingue needs uh, Santo Domingo, right? I mean, in many yeah. ways, the, the fact that Santo Domingo, the source of food, is so close to Saint Domingue, in many ways, explain why Saint Domingue was able to produce that amount of sugar and coffee and dedicate their best land just to produce these cash crops because the food was coming from across the border. So there was a constant uh, flow throughout the 18th century, but that this is the, the foundational moment of this. It is actually in the last decades of the 17th century. Yeah, I think that's really a good, a really fine. I want to put a fine point on that because, you know, in, in my research too, in the 18th century, you see this cattle trade increase and in mule trade as well. So providing the food and and you know livestock and and labor. Um, in terms of animals to really fuel these sugar mills. Um, and so, you know, you can see, and, and a lot of historiography has gone with this, you talk about Carolina and and Barbados, but, you know, New England and the cod fishery and, and Jamaica and, and other places in in the colonial Caribbean and, and these sort of foundations, these supports for these sugar economies and how much other places were wrapped up in this, in this sugar economy. It's not just the prime... Um, sugar plantations, those colonies, but it's really a, a full network uh, that are yeah. supporting these. Um, it's, really and, it's, point. and it's really interesting that, um, th- you know, obviously the crown is opposed to this trade uh, mm-hmm. in the early, very early on. By the 18th century, it's going to become regulated because there is money to be made. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in the, in the 17th century, the late 17th century is actually forbidden, but at the same time, they kind of completely uh, go against the people who are participating because these people are holding the line. 
mm-hmm. almost literally against the French, right? So while sometimes there are skirmishes against the French, in other times they're trading with the French. So li- this living in this frontier region becomes kind of really interesting in which, you know, that there are moments of conflict that are also moments of peaceful uh, collaboration, right? At, at this time, at, at least. Yeah, with the Spanish uh, having the difficult situation of not wanting San Domingo to expand too much, but also wanting to support them because it's 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 profitable to do so. Um, it, it, exactly, yeah. it's exactly yeah. right, right? I mean, the, yeah. the crown is is going to be very invested in, in by the way, by, by the yeah. 15, 1690s, very invested in kicking out the French, and they're going to try in a couple of occasions, yeah. but they're gonna they're gonna fail in part because local people in 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 Hispaniola from Santiago, particularly in the north of the island, they're going to oppose this and they're going to have sabotage. The, uh, the military expeditions uh, to to expel the French because they, by that point that trade is so important for everybody that expelling the French is not a solution particularly when the, the Spanish crown hasn't done anything to fix that that that, that commercial gap you know that exists in in Santo Domingo yeah so so kind of a related question here uh, we've you know we've spoken a lot about uh, elites and their smuggling practices and quests for local wealth and control. But kind of talking about enslaved Africans, what what role did did this group, enslaved Africans, play in this process of the early colonial history of Santo Domingo? Yeah, enslaved Africans are a crucial part of the entire contraband trade in many ways. Um, uh, but they're also caught in a in a very difficult situation, right? They are forced mm-hmm. to collaborate with their owners in their schemes for for power and influence and for in this smuggling uh, contacts. Uh, but at the same time, they are trying and sometimes are complying with those wishes in part to kind of improve their situation, gain the confidence of their owners with the ultimate goal of really uh, attaining their freedom. Right. So there is uh, in many ways, uh, enslaved Africans um, are caught between those those, you know, that they are doing something that is clearly illegal and they could actually get in trouble with 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 the, with the Spanish uh, with, with the Spanish administrators. But at the same time, their owners are forcing them to participate in this trade, right? So, so, so there is they are occupying this kind of very conflicted middle ground, right? And and sometimes they're doing they're doing the bidding of their masters because there is something for them to be gained. You know, they are they're willing participators because for them they think that they are gaining something or are. So there are some examples in the book. Uh, enslaved Africans, for example, in the early uh, 1580s, before the depopulations, enslaved Africans were in charge of actually, in many cases. Uh, loading and and collecting kind of like the goods that were going to be traded. So they are the ones. That, it's not their masters or the, or the owners. Actually, the ones who are doing this. This they are kind of crisscrossing the island through the different properties and taking the goods and taking them to the coast. So that probably gave them a, a small amount of of independence, I guess. You know, to they're, they're not. You know, the, they they can move around quite freely, which is something that you also find, I think, in rural properties there is all these cattle ranches allowed for actually a different form of of slavery that is kind of semi autonomous to a certain degree right um after the depopulations uh, particularly for those who actually live in santo domingo in this kind of struggles for power you're going to see enslaved people participating um in even in in, in uh, assassination attempts between different members of the uh, of the elite, and this is something that that I talk about. And so, so to me, in many ways, slavery becomes another another uh, part of um, this kind of struggle for power, right? So it's not only it's slavery becomes a tool a tool for 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 power in the hands of uh, it's, a, it's a te- part of a te- the technology of power that in many ways uh, slave owners are 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 um, using for their own ends, right? 
but always, I always start to kind of go back to this idea that enslaved Africans, they have their own agenda when doing this, right? And in, in the several examples that I have in the book, I try very hard to kind of try to see what do they have to gain in this process, right? And why they're doing what they're doing, right? Um, I think by the end of the, by the end of the 17th century, uh, throughout the island, there are, you know, enslaved Africans are again kind of participating in this trade with, with, with Saint-Domingue. They're very much active in, in the, in the deals of their owners. Uh, and you can see that. And I think that might have given them a, like a, a modicum amount of independence. Uh, I think they're always hoping, in, to a certain degree, they're hoping to to gain the trust of the owner and to work, collaborate with them with the ultimate goal of, of getting their freedom, right? Yeah. Yeah. I think, yeah, the, it, it's a fine line to walk and you walk it well in the book of of talking about how these enslaved Africans are used by, um, you know, the, their enslavers, but also have their own agenda. And and even though that agenda is sometimes hard and, and those experiences or perspectives are hard to get at, you can do some reading against the grain to, to figure out what, what their perspective is as well too. Yeah. So overall then, you know, with this talking about Hispaniola in the long 17th century, uh, would it be fair to say in your opinion that this colony wasn't really quote unquote Spanish at this time period? <laughs> This is this is a good question. Um, I think in some ways, you know, in some ways, uh, it was actually the opposite. It was a very much a Spanish colony, uh, but that becoming being Spanish um, and and it, it was not due to kind of historical inertia, right? Um, either by design or by flaw. Um, in, so in the case of of Hispaniola. I think local people work very hard to kind of gain a certain modicum of in, of independence from the Spanish Empire while using the tools of the Spanish Empire put at their disposal, right? So in many ways, being Spanish will actually be under the umbrella of the Spanish Empire afforded people in Hispaniola the, 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 uh, a wider margin of movement than any other uh, than any other situation. So I think in this case, and I think probably in many cases, some places kind of in the periphery, uh, it's not only just the fact that they are loyal to their king. There is more of that, more of that, right? In this case, I think um, in many ways that that independence they have reinforces Spaniola's loyalty to the crown, and not the opposite, right? Which is kind of it might seem counterintuitive, but but it's I think precisely places like this one. Uh, they they become more Spanish and not less precisely because of of their kind of um, their um, th- being surrounded also by by uh, Northern Europeans probably that also reinforced that Spanishness at least among certain groups. Yeah, I, I think it's really fascinating that that point you say about how this you know some t- you know in, in the English context it's called salutary neglect or benign neglect or in uh, the obedesco pero no cumplo uh, kind of doctrine of you know, obeying and having nominal and perhaps, you know, actual true allegiance to to the the crown of Spain. Um, but, you know, ha- having that allegiance because of that kind of being left alone to do your own thing. Um, it's really interesting because I was talking to a scholar at a conference named uh, Dr. Uh, Evan Hayfley, who kind of commented how, um, in his mind, there are some, and I'm not accusing you of this at all, but there are some people who who write about smuggling from a more nationalist perspective and say, you know, look at this, you know, in the colonial period, whatever Latin America country they're talking about, we we survived, we we did it on our own, um, and kind of having that sort of independent streak of of working. Uh, outside of the Spanish Empire, but it's—I just think it's really interesting how these two things can perhaps 
a grain of truth can be can be true for both of those that that there is some sort of autonomy and independent character being formed through this process of smelling, but at the same time also a greater allegiance to the Spanish for sort of allowing that and, and being under this sort of benign system as well. Yeah. And, you know, in the case yeah. of Hispaniola, the, the interesting thing is that they had their chance to actually kind of walk away from Spain in 1655 with the English attack, right? The island. But they could have, in some ways, you think they might they might have been able to, you know, if, I had, if, if Santo Domingo had fallen, then the sto- this story would be very different. Um, but they actually, you know, they really, um, they really routed the, the, the English, you know, they just really pushed back. So, so that must, I think there's a reason for that. I don't think that it's only historical kind of inertia of, you know, I'm a Spanish and I'm always going to be Spanish. I think there is, to a certain degree, conscious or unconscious, there is a process here that we need to consider. Yeah, and there's a real consciousness, and and the history of Jamaica would be a lot different too if if uh, Santo Domingo hadn't if if the English had had conquered Santo Domingo rather than going in the consolation prize of Jamaica in 1655. Indeed. Yeah. Indeed. So, uh, as a sort of final question about about this book, uh, what do you want readers to most take away from this work of yours? Wow, oh, goodness, um, it's <laughs> I. I uh, this a lot, right? I mean, yeah, yeah of course. I don't know. Um, I, I, to me, I, I'm still, I'm still baffled by how little work there is in the 17th century. I think to gaining a new appreciation for the 17th century in general, yeah. uh, which is kind of like the forgotten century when it comes to the colonial period, at least for for the Spanish, um, it's it, there is very little work on it. So gaining appreciation of those territories that are being traditionally seen as peripheries and to understand that they actually fulfill a very important role within the whole of the Spanish Empire, that will be some of it. Gaining some um, uh, understanding of the place that Hispaniola occupies in this kind of like wider uh, Spanish Caribbean and Spanish Atlantic, I think that would be also uh, very, very useful. Um, so I will probably go with that. <laughs> Sounds good. Well, there's a, there's a lot to take away from this book, so um, that's probably an unfair question there. Um, <laughs> a, a, as a sort of final question, we, we like to ask all our, our guests here, um, are there any projects on the horizon for you, any publications that you want to alert us to? Well, I'm, I'm working now on an article for, uh, for a special number that Ida Alman and David Witter putting together for Colonial Latin American Review. So it's actually about an episode in Santo Domingo that uh, that happened in the uh, 1680s, and it involves actually Rodrigo Pimentel actually mm-hmm. features quite prominently in it. But it's basically the the is what happened actually before the the fall of Veracruz. Uh, the fall of Veracruz in many, in many ways was in some ways was provoked by some events that actually happened in Santo Domingo in the in the 1680s. So I'm finishing that article right now, and then I'm also I'm working on a on a translation and critical edition of the travels of a, a gentleman called Gregorio de Robles, hmm. who is an individual who actually traveled through the through all the Atlantic in the 1680s, 1690s. He he was he crossed as a soldier in San Agustin and then was able to kind of like uh, get discharged. And he traveled everywhere in the Caribbean. He went to the Andes. He went to Tierra de Fuego, to like Argentina. He went to Africa. He was taken prisoner. So and he goes everywhere describing what he sees. And talking, uh, giving advice to the crown about what they could do in different places, and um, encountering contraband trade everywhere he goes. So I, I, I think it would be a really useful. There are not that many voices for for the late 17th century, nor not many Spanish voices for for that period. So I think this would be a nice addition um, to to put it out there. And then the, the biggest project, I guess, that I have in hand now, I'm I'm trying to kind of 
put together a, a project around enslaved Afrika for descendants in the insular Spanish Caribbean, right, throughout the 17th mm-hmm. century. So looking at Eastern Cuba, Hispaniola, Puerto Rico, and Jamaica before 1655. But I, I don't really don't know where that is going. I, I'm, I'm just starting with that one. That's, and that is way, it's really, really big. So we'll see. Great. Great. Well, we look forward to seeing those works in the in the print in print sometime sometime in the future. Thank uh, you, Dr. Ponce Vasquez. Uh, many thanks for your time in this really really great conversation. Thank you, Grant. Thank you. Thank you a lot. Yeah. So, Islanders and Empire: Smuggling and Political Defiance in Hispaniola, fifteen eighty to sixteen ninety, is out now via Cambridge University Press. For the New Books Network, this is R. Grant Clauser saying thank you and see you next time.